Our second speaker takes us into the field of practice. Um, in, in this whole field, the term scholar-practitioner is often an appropriate one. And Dan Smith, I think, could come under that heading. Dan has not only been a practitioner, particularly recently with International Alert, but he was also, from 1993 to 2001, director of the International Peace Research Institute in Oslo. We, we look forward, Dan, to hearing you on peacemaking and peace building. What can research and practice learn from each other? Thank you, thank you very much, Liz. Thank you, people, for coming. And thank you for whoever fixed the flyby for me. You're <laughs> suitably moved. Um, when I come and uh, talk to sort of uh, in primarily academic environments and so on, I, th I feel this is a little bit like, you know, the Oxford chapter of uh, Academics Anonymous. And I want to say that, you know, my name is Dan and I am an academic. I haven't actually had a peer review article published for 11 years, but this year I fell prey to the temptation and I have written a literature review which I hope is going to be published at the beginning of next year, but, you know, and then I'm, I swear I'm going to leave the bottle alone after that. <laughs> and why did I fall prey to that temptation? It is because I think that it actually, when the academy and the world of practice, or whatever we call it, the practice community, community of practice, can talk to each other and um, relate to each other best, there is a kind of symbiosis which can work very well. But I have to confess um, a certain degree of disappointment about how that relationship works in practice. And one of the things I'm interested about by something like uh, Oxpeace, and this is not the only such initiative to be found either in Europe or if you look in North America or elsewhere in South and Southeast Asia, uh, there also are and have been uh, attempts like this. Um, the reason for being interested in in them is because of that effort to build the relationship. Well, I, have a, I have a very weird sense of humor, um, and I was reading again the title of my talk, What Can Research and Practice Learn From Each Other? And I think it's a very good title. It's one which I completely like. But it started to occur to me that maybe research and practice were two individuals. Uh, what could these two people learn from each other? And I thought that Maybe I would, you know, if one were trying to write a reference for each of them, what would you say? Um, you know, practice, he's a nice chap. Um, he's a bit eager. Um, he's prone to get trapped into routines. Um, occasionally, when he hits an obstacle, he just plows on regardless, muttering things about project, deadline, donor evaluations, and log frames. <laughs> And he's got to pay attention to that um, in order to sharpen himself up a bit. But as for research, I mean, what can we say about her? I mean, <laughs> susceptible to, to sporadic bouts of excitability, but generally somebody who keeps plugging along, um, looking very hard. But, you know, because her, her eyes are down a lot of the time and her fringe is falling over her face a bit, She's looking for things very hard, but she's not always quite clear what she should be looking for. And if she could raise her gaze a bit from time to time, then maybe she'd see the curve which she's hunting for. And if she saw that curve, maybe she'd have a chance of getting ahead of it instead of being behind it. 
we work a, uh, a little bit with, uh, with various companies, and especially um, extraction companies, uh, oil, gas, and mining. And one of the ones that we have worked with a little bit is Shell. And we've learned within Shell the sort of the, the epitome of that good and bad side of the chap called Practice, whom I just introduced to you. There's a saying in Shell that very often gets said at the end of meetings. Can we drill now? You know, okay, that was interesting. Conflict sensitivity. Hmm. Can we drill now? <laughs> because that's what you want to do. So how could, how could this symbiosis work? What is it that practice and research need to be communicating to each other? How could we link, you know, the specific and the abstract, the practical and the, the theoretical? As I said, I'm a little bit disappointed about how this relationship works a lot of the time. And I will bring out some examples of that. But I hope it's not going to sound, first of all, I hope it's not going to sound like a practitioner complaining about the academy. That's why I started by introducing you to my dark past. You know, I'm, I'm one of you. I, I know where you've been. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm, I'm an academic and a researcher too. I'm not complaining from one side of the divide across about the other. And also, as I say, when the relationship works well, then it can be really exciting, really interesting, and really productive. And it's that hope which drives forward some of the comments I'm going to make. Practice, the world of practice in peace building is struggling with a couple of things. I mean, struggling with many things, but two ideas that I wanted to put out to you. One is, what are the drivers of conflict? What are the root causes? And how do you address them? Sometimes I wish that the term root cause had never, ever been invented. Because you sort of, you sit in an office in Bangladesh with some international donors, or one international donor in particular. And you talk about the complex of issues that Bangladesh faces. Um, poverty, poor governance, uh, a very tenuous sort of democratic history. We, institutions which are there, but which are uh, unevenly weak and strong. Um, the economy is just in a terrible state, and has been. Inequality is sometimes quite grotesque. I mean, you can drive through the middle of Dhaka, the capital, and see people just lying asleep in, in, in their fruit baskets, which come morning they're going to use to be trying to be porters carrying things uh, around from the, in the markets because that's the only job they can get and it doesn't pay them nearly enough to have anything like a roof over their heads. And then you see the, the villas and the cars and the bodyguards that the, that the elite have. And then, of course, it's got um, the delta and the pr problems that that brings with it. It's got the Ganges-Brahmaputra river system, which is bringing the effects of climate change down the river in, in floods and uh, changing flows and so on. It's just, it's a huge web of different kinds of issues. And the danger of this term root cause is that it all gets diagnosed in terms of one thing. It's poverty. So what we need is a poverty reduction program. And as soon as we've reduced poverty in Bangladesh, then we can deal with every other problem, the conflict, the climate, and so on. Yes, but excuse me. You can't deal with those other problems, with poverty, 
unless you also address the issues of climate change and insecurity and bad governance and so on, because they're interrelated. Yes, but the root cause is poverty. So if we could address the root cause. That's, that's why I, I have this kind of semi-allergic reaction sometimes to the idea of a root cause. But what could, what could the, what, or rather what couldn't the academy offer by really helping the world of practice get to grips with understanding what is the relationship between these problems, not at an abstract level, not in a large-end study across 35 or 40 years, but right here in this country, given its history, what kind of things as practitioners should we be looking for and doing? This is a tangled set of problems and we need the best minds to be, to be focusing on it. There are such deep problems, it will take a lot of energy and a lot of time before we run out. Trying to sort our way through this, the community of practice in peace building is now grappling with another term, which is the theory of change. Do you all know the theory of change concept? If, as academics, you haven't come across the idea of the theory of change as it's currently being used amongst practitioners, you are in for a shock. Because the theory of change should be one sentence long and consist of essentially two clauses in the sentence. If I do this, then that will happen. If I address the root cause of poverty, Bangladesh will get better. Right? That's the sort of theory of change. If we can engage youth political leaders in Lebanon into a prolonged dialogue of ever enlarging the issues which they discuss, then we will increase, or they will increase, their levels of trust and mutual understanding. And then you can go on to the next clause. And therefore, politics in Lebanon will be healthier, prospects for peace will be enhanced, and so on and so forth. I read the sort of guide, the practical guide to the theory of change, if that doesn't sound uh, too contradictory a, a concept. And it's sort of, it's screaming for people who really do think about theory to get involved. Because what should be happening is that we say, well, we, we're building a theory of change. And this theory of change produces these hypotheses. I mean, the, what is called the theory of change is just the hypothesis, if, then. Right? That's something you can test. If I do this, that will happen. If it does happen, that's great. Did it have the effect that I expected? If so, yes. There's a series of testable things. I can evaluate, I can record. I may sometimes be able to measure it. It could be quantitative. But for a lot, it's a qualitative judgment. But it's a yes, yes no, it, or maybe. It did happen. It sort of happened. And because you can evaluate it, then you can also improve. You can say, well, if I do this slightly differently, on the basis of experience. But all these are, are hypotheses. Right? And the broader theory of change, one step back, which explains why in different social contexts these things may be working or not working, which looks at them, would help organizations, whether they're like International Alert, my own, or Conciliation Resources, or DFID, or the United Nations, would help all such institutions and agencies involved in this field learn from different experience. But we need help and assistance to be doing that. And I would love to see the academy 
getting seriously engaged in looking at the theories of change. What you would have to do, if you don't mind be, being really rude about this, but I think that a lot of academics have done it anyway, is to lose your virginity. Because you've got to not be worried about the fact that what is going on is an attempt to change countries and places and people's experience for the better. You cannot just inquire into it. It's got to have an ethical drive for change behind it. If you had that, then I think that the, the Academy has so much to offer in helping us to understand the relationship between the different causes of a country's dilemmas and um, its cul-de-sac in development at the moment and understanding and operationalizing on the basis of theories of change. So that's one area where I feel the relationship could be so much better. I'll, the second example I'm going to take, actually Richard referred to briefly in the course of his, his talk just now. Um, I think it's about 1996 that Roy Licklider produced this study which said that 50% of armed, 50% uh, uh, of peace agreements break down within five years. Okay. Um, how did that part of the academic world which responded to that academic finding how did they respond? I would have thought that the obvious question to ask is why? Why do half of all peace agreements break down within five years? Let's study this a little bit more closely. Let's look at some things across and broad, across them all. I mean, there's one heck of a lot of peace agreements. Uh, there's an awful lot of material there. I, I'm just reading a book at the moment by Christine Bell. She lists between the beginning of 1990 and some date in 2007, 664 peace agreements, documents that can be regarded as peace agreements, of which 592, I think it is, are about internal conflicts. And this is, in about, this is referring to about 105 conflict dyads, the whole 664. So there's an awful lot of material to be able to, to look at. Um, so why do peace agreements break down so often? What is it? What is it more than the agreement which is needed? That seems to me like the interesting question. The part of the academic world which I'm most familiar with, seeing what their response to this was, was to say, really, 50%? Hmm, that seems a bit high. Let's study that number some more. And it brought it down to the number which uh, Richard quoted, which was 25 to 35% or thereabouts, which is partly through redefining and doing the numbers differently and da 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 da, and partly because actually time's moved on and maybe uh, we're getting a little bit better and uh, more peace agreements are sticking for longer than, than five years. But now that we know that it's 25 to 30%, and it's an Oxford professor who told me this, so I'm, I'm going to hang my flag there, right? 25 to 35% breakdown in five years. I'm sorry, it's not 50%. Now, what actual difference does that make to my knowledge of what is important? And what difference does it make to practitioners? 50%, 35%. An awful lot of effort has gone into that, right? Sometimes you sort of feel in the world of practice, you're trying to do things that, like I said, you get stuck on ideas like root cause, drivers, you, 
using without meaning to terms very loosely, talking about ethnic conflict when it's not just ethnic, of course. Um, and then sometimes you look across the academic world and you think, couldn't they just ask the right question? This is why I mentioned at the beginning when I was describing research that she's ever so nice and she looks very, very hard, but sometimes her head is too much down like that and she can't see where she should be looking for the important things. A field which has been um, quite important for me in the past three, four years and has consumed some of my time and energy and is actually um, is the topic on which I have uh, succumbed to temptation and written my first um, alcoholic paper, I mean academic paper for the past decade, um, is the relationship between climate change and insecurity. I'm not a natural scientist, but from what I read, it seems to me that the hope of keeping the world to a rise on average of two degrees centigrade above um, pre-1990 levels, or in pre-industrial age levels, that's gone. It's going to be a three to four degree world. Right? And that's an average with other large shifts which are not fully understood by any means by the natural science. There are country-sized gaps in the data. Uh, climate projection is a very approximate science. But if you look at some of the projections, which there are, for what will happen to the monsoon season, for what will happen to droughts, for if you look at some of the things which are happening, which may be to do with climate change, like the shift in typhoon patterns, in the, in the Philippines, in Southeast Asia, and so on. It's hard to conclude from this that there will not be some kind of significant social impact. If there's going to be an impact on water supply, well, we rely on water for daily use, for industry, for food, for irrigation, for energy generation. If there's going to be, therefore, some kind of impact on energy supply and on food, which will have an effect on food prices, on livelihoods, on the security of food supply for the poorest people. Uh, if therefore people are going to move, they're going to leave areas which are becoming effectively unsustainable, parts of the human habitat that become effectively uninhabitable. If they're going to move from there, they're going to go somewhere are they going to keep on flooding into the cities, into the, the megacities themselves? A lot of them are low-lying coastal plains where sea level rise will become an issue for them. So there might be a second migration coming up. I mean, there must be, it seems to me, however loose and rough and ready some of the science is, one must think that there is going to be social implications. And those social implications in a for a country like um, let's say the Netherlands, which is organized the way it is and has the wealth that it does and the history of organization that it does, may be rather different than another low-lying country that also faces a lot of incursions from the sea, which I've already mentioned, Bangladesh, which has the wealth that it has, the history and the institutions that it has, and which is expecting, according to its national strategy for climate change, that 
to lose the living area and the farming area now occupied on the coastline, now occupied by 20 million people. In other words, that the, uh, the residences and the livelihood places, locations, for 20 million people will probably be removed or may well be removed by climate change. And where will those 20 million people go? And what will be the social impact? Seems to me that there's, there's something there that is worthy of further study. And it seems to me that to understand that, one's got to think about risk rather than just about fact. One's got to think about what may be rather than just about what is. And we have to think about the future on an assumption that the future will be rather different from the re even the quite recent past. Um, how has the Academy responded to this? Well, one whole section of the academic world has responded by, instead of helping analyze risk and figuring out how tomorrow looks, has gone for the heart of the matter, which is to criticize Ban Ki-moon. <laughs> because Ban Ki-moon once said that Darfur was probably, amongst other things, the first climate conflict. He didn't actually say if you look at the words very, very closely, if I put on my academic hat and I can be just as nerdy as the rest, he doesn't actually say the conflict in Darfur is caused by climate change. But he did come quite close to saying that. So rather than look at the future, at implications for hundreds of millions of people, 400 million people in the northern, northeastern part of South Asia rely on the Ganges-Brahmaputra river system which is clearly already being affected by climate change. But instead of looking at that, let's have a look at what Ban Ki-moon said, because I don't think the relationship between armed conflict and uh, climate change is quite like that. And so let's generate a whole number of articles, including a special issue of the Journal of Peace Research, in which we look at the relationship by not looking at the future, but looking at the past. Um, since it's rather difficult to model changes in climate, will reduce climate to weather. Since it's rather difficult to really get to grips with insecurity and the kind of things that might make people move and so on, we'll reduce the question of, of security to whether there's an armed conflict going on or not. We'll also look at the relationship between change in weather and the incidence of armed conflict, even though I would have thought, recovering academic as I am, that in the equivalent of what the Americans would call conflict theory 101. Rule number one on the first page is there has never been an armed conflict with only a single cause. So why are you doing bivariate large end studies of the past 40 years in order to try and understand what will happen in the future? It's mildly odd. But what it does do is generates a lot of articles. You can have academic conferences about it. You can get the journals. You get peer-reviewed by other people who write similar articles. In this literature review that I just did, what's interesting, and this I think is really a sort of, um, this is about as tough a thing as I'm going to say about the academic world, right, is there is a need for some humility. Because if you take away the sieve that says peer review 
And instead, you put on sieves which say interest and relevance and depth of study and granular detail. Then what you will find is that the peer-reviewed literature really does fall away at that point. It's the so-called gray literature, not peer-reviewed, but you know, seriously assessed by um, colleagues of the author before it was put out in that report from USAID or Swedish CEDAR or in International Alert or, or, or whomever. That's where the real advance in ideas and evidence and thinking about risk and so on is, is going on. And again, it would just be an enormous boon if instead of organizations which are doing stuff and then on the side try to think and reflect a little bit about it, if instead of it just being them, actually institutions whose job is to think about stuff were to focus their energy onto that question and do so in a really sort of helpful and constructive kind of a way. I've got three suggestions which I, I, I wanted to put for things that really, on the side of the tracks where I now stand amongst practitioners, where we could really be do, do with some help, where we're floundering a bit. One of them is visible if you look at the relationship between peacemaking and peace building. Um, just to simplify crudely, um, taking sort of headlines away from the much more nuanced presentation that Richard gave about these two things. Peacemaking, and especially the emphasis on mediation and negotiation, can in, and seen as the process of getting the peace agreement signed, is essentially an elite operation. Peace building is about a broader social process, which is essentially about citizenship. And one of the things which I think is partly in this statistic of whether it's 50% or 35% that go wrong within five years or however long, but which is also at the core of thinking about how is it that countries could develop in a way that took them out of their vulnerability to conflict risk, is the relationship between state and citizen and how that relationship works out at different stages, where it goes wrong and a country explodes into war, where it starts to go right maybe and a peace agreement is being reached, where the transition is made from the elite to the citizenship agreement. And I would, by the way, throw in there as part of the comparative basis of study the Northern Ireland peace process, which I think was also very, very interesting, sometimes tragic, sometimes really hopeful, for the, the way in which this sort of alternation between the elite and, and the citizen levels happened. And Liz was talking uh, to me last night about her work on the, the peace accord in 1991 in South Africa. And again, it's this, the issue of the relationship between these different levels. And I think that we are rather floundering with, with that. We know there are those two levels there. And these, the, the deficient or the absent consensuses on key questions that Richard was remarking on in the peace-building field is, to some degree, this issue around elite and citizen uh, levels and the relationship between them is, is, a, is a common factor there. My second suggestion actually builds on that a little bit, and it's to think about 
From a peace-building perspective or a conflict resolution perspective, however you want to define the, the field, one of the key uh, development dilemmas or tasks long-term, one of the key parts of the development project, is to manage violence. One of the things that International Alert sort of now has ground into its DNA is, uh, is to say, you know, conflict is not the problem. Violence is the problem. Armed conflict is the problem. But conflict itself, disputes, disagreement, those can and should be healthy. In fact, we define peace as being that time when members of a society are able to handle their conflicts without damage, without damage to themselves, to each other, to people in other countries, without damage to the future. And this entails within our field, within peace building and the related and much bigger field of development, it means thinking about development as development and not falling into the trap of thinking about development as official development assistance. If you ask somebody what, what they think of when they think of development, if they think of development at all, they'll think of Save the Children or Oxfam or the aid budget or how we're generally spending much too money on those people down there and they should get on with it by themselves. All of which means that they're thinking about ODA. Right. But ODA is what it says. It's official development assistance. It's to assist something. That something is called development. And the ODA industry has taken over and has colonized development thinking so much that it's actually quite difficult sometimes to find real studies of actual development being done. And you can see this because if you go into the development big development institutions and ask, okay, tell me a case of successful development. You know the amazing thing? Nobody will say Sweden. Nobody says the Netherlands. Nobody says Switzerland. Nobody even dreams of saying the UK. Nobody thinks of these countries as being countries which have developed and are still developing. You think of development as being for that part of the world, but actually it's for all of us. So if we could think about development as a historical process, not as a segment of the government's budget, if we could think about development as being something that countries, communities, societies do, and that outsiders maybe can assist in, perhaps we could start to be a little bit more targeted about some of the assistance which we provide, and a little bit more humble, which I think would also be good. And in both of those two suggestions which I've made so far about elite citizen relationships and about thinking about development as development, my real interest is not in more theory, and it's not in more broadly based large-end studies. We'd got a lot of those and there's a lot of theory and I like some of the theory and most of the theory which I like on this topic is written by Douglas North and thankfully it's a quite small book so you know I'm, I'm happy. I don't want more of that. What I want more of is what these questions and issues mean in Bangladesh or Pakistan or Democratic Republic of Congo or perhaps in this area in West Africa, in Central Asia and so on. But I want, I want specifics. And having said that I want specifics, now for my third one, let me go to, um, to the general one. Sorry, before I do that, let me say that the issue which links 
those first two questions. States is in relationship and what development really is and what it's about. There's two things I think that link there. One is the question or the process of building institutions and getting a better understanding of how institutions are built. As one gets that better understanding, I'm convinced that we will understand that it's not possible for institutions to be foisted from the outside onto a country or a community, that they have to come up from within, that there are already the seeds there. Going back to the climate change work that I was talking about, one of the findings to come out of that is that if you drill down and look at how adaptation to climate, the effects of climate change or climate variability is happening, you always find, if it's being done well, it's got a strong element of local involvement, engagement, driving, and buy-in. Don't romanticize the local. People who live in a locality can get things just as badly wrong as people who live somewhere else. Right? And they do need, very often, not always, but very often, they do need some kind of external assistance. They need a legal framework, or they need money, or they need material, or they need technical skills. But if you don't have the local element driving that forward, and the institutions being built at that level, the evidence that I've seen seems to suggest that then climate change adaptation doesn't happen. And I think the same thing is true when you look more broadly at institution building in um, development contexts. If it's not happening with that local authenticity, it won't happen. That's not to say that if it is locally authentic, it's going to be great, because lots of locally authentic things are absolutely disgusting and despicable and shouldn't be allowed for even a second. They're just unethical and immoral, of course. But it's a necessary condition without being a sufficient condition. And the issue which is, comes out of that, then, is what are the incentives for change? Because the institutional pattern that exists at the moment will be an institutional pattern that fits a particular distribution of society in that country that you're talking about. Bangladesh isn't, or, or power in Bangladesh is not organized the way it is by coincidence. It's organized so that the powerful can be powerful, and they're going to keep hold of that. So what's the incentive for the powerful groups to be coming to a new bargain between elites and citizens? What's the incentive for the elite to come to new institutional arrangements in which the management of violence can, be, can, can change in the, the way that it's done, and rather than violence being managed by the one who's capable of the most violence, that violence is managed by reducing the incidence of violence through strong institutions. So those are my first two suggestions. My third one, as I said, I want as much that's specific in those first two as possible, and that's my alibi for being enormously general and big picture with my third one. Compared to 200 years ago, there are seven times as many people in the world. We passed the population mark of one billion worldwide in about 1810 or thereabouts, and we're now at about seven, heading up for nine, as most people are aware. Although, whether we go on beyond nine and up to 12 or start to tail off, there are different projections and possibilities. At the moment, there's about seven times as many of us as there were 200 years ago. That's more of us than there have ever been. We consume, according to some... Um, uh, Yes, I've, I've, I've written something down wrongly here. That's why I was pausing. Um, we consume, according to some estimates, something like 75 times as much energy as we did 200 years ago and 60 times as much water. And global production, our output 
of material things is about 50 times what it was 200 years, years ago. If we get to be nine times as many of us, does it continue to go up? Do we, are we by then producing 60 times as much, consuming 90 times as much energy, 70 to 75 times as much water? If we hope for equitable distribution across the world, does it keep, just keep on going up? 100 times as much output, 150 times as much energy, 120 times as much water? If this doesn't seem sustainable in the long term, what's not just the economics of resilience to climate change and other environmental pressures and the economics of change, but what's the sociology and the anthropology of the, those kinds of changes? Those challenges seem to me to be the really, really big challenges. If I get given a professorship sometime where somebody says to me, Dan, you have a beautiful mind, just think. And at the end of doing a bit of thinking, will you please just write and occasionally speak? That, I think, is the, the area, the sort of the, the blue sky, except it's a somewhat gray sky that one wants to, to look into. There's a concept that you may know of, the planetary boundaries. Um, dreamed up by a bunch of scientists convened by the Stockholm Resilience Centre. Nine boundaries include climate change, biodiversity, ocean acidification, chemical pollution, aerosol pollution, four others. Two of them, at the last time of uh, asking, they hadn't uh, quantified. Seven of they, them they have, and of those seven, we've transgressed three. The idea of a planetary boundary seems to me to be interesting, because on this side of the, the border, we're sort of more or less in safe operating space. On the other side, we don't know what's there. And we don't know what's there if all of those boundaries get transgressed and what their interaction is. So, yeah, I'd like a lot more specifics, please. But I would also like some big thinking about those big issues. And I suggest that if you start thinking seriously about some of those big issues, then just as the founders of Peace Research did, in the late 1950s, early 1960s. Um, and as the founders of the Bradford School of Peace Studies did in the late 60s, early 70s, you will decide that the topic for your study and your writing and your teaching is not economics or anthropology or political science. It is actually peace and that there is some kind of sense that there could be, maybe, of this is the disciplines of peace. This. At the beginning, I was talking about research and practice as two people. I don't like, well, actually, I do like extended metaphors, you can tell. I was going to say I don't like extending metaphors too much, but I think most people would disagree with that. Uh, I do like extending metaphors a great deal. And I'm, I'm hunting for one here. Um, in which the disciplines need not just an interdisciplinary relationship, but around these big issues of peace, resources, the management of violence, what development really means. They need a marriage. Thank you very much.